respect violence Bad man move in silence The fakers form an alliance But the real is always triumph They only respect violence Bad man move in silence yeah, welcome back. This is uh, episode four of Ricardo's podcast. Uh, you just heard uh, Jay Huss, uh, Triumph, new track from the new album. Um, I've been wondering, actually, whether or not this year is like the year of the UK rapper when you got Jay Huss and uh, Stormzy taking off as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, just want to add a little bit of that flavor at the beginning. Uh, so what happened this week? Actually, I uh, just wanted to um, talk about a few things that I saw uh, before we get going on the program today. So actually last night I was out at dinner with one of my friends and, you know, the big thing we noticed was that it was just this big table of women that were sitting there just having a good time. And I was just wondering if guys ever really go out without ladies and just have a good time for the sake of having a good time. And the two of us just concluded that, like, we never really do that. It's like there always has to be a nightclub or like you're on vacation somewhere you know, doing something big, but not really just having like a nice, you know, quiet dinner. And we just looked over at their table and was like, how dare you sit there and have a good time without us? So, you know, just want to share that with you. Um, so what do we have today? So, yeah, it's episode four. I want to get into a few things. Um, I think I want to talk about, you know, again, sports tech entertainment. So on the sports side, I really want to talk about Aaron Hernandez and Delante West in terms of, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Mental health and sports uh, for the tech side, a few dating apps, um, healthcare, and and uh, big data as well. And then, you know, just end it a little bit in terms of entertainment, just talking through a lot more again in um, what do you call it? Just uh, Zion Williamson's uh, debut. So we'll go through that. And I'm actually debuting a new segment this week. Uh, that segment is called the two minute drill. So what I want to do with the two minute drill is just like, a two minute segment where I just touch on like a few things and, you know, just run through them quickly before we get into the first big segment. So why don't we take a break and we'll come back and we'll do the first part of the two minute drill. All right, cool. So we're back. Uh, this is a two minute drill. So we'll just start and we'll start right now. So Australian Open, first thing, uh, Serena Williams is out. Coco Golf is out. Uh, Venus Williams is out. And also, who else is out? Sloane Stevens. So no more Black Girl Magic at the Australian Open. Uh, but the big thing was that, you know, Coco Goff had a really great win over Naomi Osaka, Naomi Osaki, sorry, at Osaka. And also Serena Williams, you know, right now we're still waiting for her to have that big win as a mother and also to pass Margaret Court on on the most Grand Slam titles. So we're still waiting on that to happen. Uh, next thing, Amazon wants you to be able to pay for your... He wants, wants you to be able to check out at supermarkets with just a wave of the hand. And so they're in discussions with Visa and Microsoft, uh, Visa and MasterCard to figure out a way to link your credit card to your hand so that you just put your hand up at the terminal and boom, payment is made and you walk out. I'm not sure I'm really feeling that, but it's something that's coming anyway. And so Amazon really wants to have your biometric data. Uh, Visa just invested in the 35 million round of Flutterwave, the African fintech company. If you couple that with their investment in Plaid last week and also their investment in also Paystack, which is another fintech company, you can see that Visa is really future proofing and trying to find a way that whichever way the wind blows, they're going to have a part of it. And so that's kind of what they're looking for for the future. Uh, also, let's look at credit for a little bit. So a lot of Americans, you know, credit scores have been on the rise for the last 10 years, but the service that 
you know, controls your credit score, FICO is actually looking to change their algorithms that would lower the score for about 80 million people would see their credit scores go down by 20 points. And what's really driving that is that, you know, a lot of com- a lot of lenders are starting to figure out that they're not really lending to borrowers who have good credit. They just appear to have good credit. And what a lot of people are doing is they just, you know, get a personal loan, take out their credit card and then make it look like they have zero balance, but they actually have more money on their credit card still. So that's the next thing that's coming up. Boom, I think we're out of time. I went a little bit over. So that's it for the two minute drill. Okay, so the first uh, long segment today, I'm going to talk about sports and I'm going to talk about Aaron Hernandez and Delonte West. Um, There's this great documentary on Netflix on Aaron Hernandez. Uh, For those of you who don't know who he is, he's the uh, former New New England Patriots tight end, was convicted for murder, was acquitted for another double murder. And all of these events happened like while he was still playing for the Patriots. And so while I was watching the documentary, there were a few things that just jumped out at me as just being crazy. Um, so the, the kind of narrative that they tried to paint was that, you know, he was homosexual. And so he was trying to cover up his sexuality by being a bit more masculine or at least masculine as he sees it in, in his own eyes. And, you know, that's what really led to him thugging and being out and doing certain things that he was doing. And then the other thing that was also kind of alluded to was that, you know, he grew up in this abusive household where his father, you know, was probably abusive to his mother and his father was not someone who was open to his sexuality. And so that was like the second layer that they put on. And then later on out into the documentary, they started talking about, you know, CTE, the potential brain damage he could have suffered from being a football player. So like all three of those things blended together are kind of like the three things they're saying that might have led to him living this very violent life and committing these murders. But when you really look at it, there are a lot of people who suffer from these same things who don't commit murder. And the other thing about it that was a bit irresponsible, at least in my opinion, in terms of like weaving the narrative is kind of they kind of draw this parallel between his sexuality and how that was kind of like the driving force for him to continue to be a certain way, for him to continue like showing this kind of hyper masculinity. And it resulted in some of these crimes. And you could see that he was probably a disturbed individual But as I dug deeper watching the documentary, it seems like the narrative that made the most sense actually was the one where you have this football player who goes down to the University of Florida, gets in a fight at a bar, and no charges are pressed because he's a player for the Gators. And so the first time you kind of sense that, you probably start feeling a little invincible. And he continues to push the envelope, continues to push the envelope. And then what you have is like this sense that like no one can stop me. And so if you look at the murders, actually, like none of them, first, the one that he was convicted for and the one that he was acquitted for that, you know, they alleged for quite some time that he did, like there was no real premeditation. There was just kind of like this very erratic behavior where someone just like said something or did something and he snapped and then he just went out and like got his gun and killed someone. And, and so when you, when you really start, you know, digging deeper, you can probably draw a line between you know, the CTE, you can probably draw a line between kind of, you know, this this family situation that was not stellar. But the homosexual line, I, I thought was was a bit strange and probably irresponsible in terms of, you know, trying to tell that story. And so when, when I look at the documentary as a whole, I thought it was really well done. Um, I do think there's probably going to be a bit more 
you know, information we have on CTE as we get more data. But, you know, the biggest thing for me was actually something that his mother said at the very beginning of the documentary, because the only time you hear from Aaron Hernandez or the people close to him are during those phone calls when he was in jail. And his mom just said, you know, all you ever really needed was structure. And when you really think about it, I think a lot of us, you know, growing up who may not grow up with both of our parents or grow up, you know, in a very kind of turbulent way, it's probably harder for us to have a certain kind of life. It's harder for us to settle down and live the lives that we want because we didn't have structure growing up. So that's something I could I could kind of identify with, but I still couldn't get over the line of saying, you know, you didn't have structure and therefore it brought you this far to commit these crimes or you were a closeted homosexual and because you were uncomfortable with it, you lashed out and committed these crimes. So there are a lot of things that I thought as I as I watched the documentary just didn't add up, but I, I would recommend it to anyone because I think it is great. And I, I think it does shed some light on what brain damage comes from football and what that brain damage can lead to. But sometimes we also have to just accept that the easy answer is also a good one, which is that he killed these people with no good reason and deserves zero sympathy. Um, but I do now want to move to someone who I think does deserve some sympathy, and that's Delonte West. So I think a lot of people might have seen the videos that have been circulating of Delonte. Um, you know, he was in a fight on the highway and then like the police officer was interviewing him. And you could tell he had some clear mental health issues. And, you know, he definitely was not in a good place financially or mentally. And it got me wondering, like, you know, what can the league do to kind of avoid these kinds of scenario? Because ultimately, you know, Delonte played in the league, I think, eight years, made 14 million dollars and is now in this situation. And I wonder if there's not something financially that the league can do now. These financial measures probably won't lead to him being in better mental health condition, but they may lead to him to be able to help himself financially to get the help he needs, as opposed to feeling like he needs a handout. So when I think about it, I, you know, I thought about two or three things, actually. The first one is the NBA pension, you're eligible for it after three years, but you don't get to draw on it until you're 62 an early drawdown isn't until 45 years old, but this is a league where careers only last four and a half years. So they need to kind of, you know, align the time you're out of the league between the time you can draw down on your pension. Now, it's true that you want your pension to be there as you get older, but for someone like Delante, it doesn't do him any good to have money in 20 or 30 years when he actually needs it now. And so I wonder if there could be some kind of hardship exception where you see someone is really struggling, maybe you go ahead and allow them to draw down on their pension so they can help themselves financially. The other one that I think is probably more palatable to players and to the league is some kind of forced savings where like you defer 5% of your salary until you retire. And then that 5% is paid out to you pro rata between the day you retire and the day you become eligible for your pension so that you can at least have some kind of financial stability or you know some, some kind of safety net between the time you retire and the time you become pension eligible, because ultimately not everyone is responsible with their finances. Not everyone who becomes a millionaire keeps their millions. And, you know, when you're looking at young men who are making so much money so early, it's probably a good idea to have some kind of mechanism in place that can help them. And if you look at, if you take the example of Allen Iverson, right, and this was something he did with his endorsements, so Allen Iverson hasn't dribbled a basketball in the NBA since I think 2011, but every year Reebok still pays him $800,000 from a de deferred compensation arrangement. And then by the time Allen Iverson turns 55 years old, the 
Reebok will give him $32 million. So that's, that's an example of someone who managed to kind of set up their finances in a way that they didn't get it all at once. They kind of put some contingencies in place that would allow for them to continue making money while they're not playing and to kind of cover themselves financially when, when their peak earning years are over. And so when I saw the Delonte West story that, you know, that came to mind immediately as to what can the league do to kind of help its players. So those are two things I thought about, but I just thought those two stories together were kind of a sign as to kind of, you know, the way we adulate players, the way we kind of look at them is they're invincible. They are human and they do have issues. And in the case of Aaron Hernandez, I do think that there's a lot that was going on there that the documentary tried to present but didn't really tie it up together. I think it left you to draw your own conclusions with the exception of one conclusion I thought was that they really wanted you to tie his homosexuality to his criminal behavior. And I just wasn't rolling with that. And then the other thing with Delante as well is that, you know, if he was in a better position financially, maybe he'd be in a better position to seek help. And so that's it for the sports segment for this week. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about um, big data and healthcare. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about um, something I saw earlier this week, actually. Um, and it goes into kind of, you know, one of the themes I've touched on on the first two episodes, and I think it's something I'll continue to touch on, which is kind of this, you know, move towards consolidation of consumer data in the hands of only a few, few companies. And now that consolidation has gone another level to where we're now consolidating consumer and healthcare data with those companies. So I saw two stories this week that I thought were interesting, one in the Wall Street Journal and another one in the Financial Times. And so both of these stories kind of got into how Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, all of these like very large tech companies want to have access to your healthcare data. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, what are some of the benefits of that and why do they want it? And so the hospitals can only, you know, um, disclose data that they they're allowed to in accordance with federal law. And the federal law is HIPAA. You can go look it up and see what the disclosure requirements are there. But, you know, when, I, when I'm reading it, I, I just thought to myself, you know, do I want these companies to know if I have an STD? What are the blowback if Amazon now knows that, like, you know, I have chlamydia or something, or if I have high blood pressure or whatever the case may be? And, you know, it, it, it does raise a lot of concerns for me. And I, I just wanted to share them here to kind of get get some, you know, get those thoughts out and get some feedback on it. Because look, on one level, there's a net benefit for it, right? There's the efficient use of information, whereby if Amazon or Google has all this data on people's health, they can know when an epidemic is coming, they can know and, you know, they can probably put certain things in place to, to kind of ensure that certain things don't happen. Um, you know, beyond just the efficient use of data, they can get you to treatment when you need it. So if you look at Amazon, someone who owns pharmacies, who wants to get into healthcare, now wants to have all your healthcare data. Now, if they're a one-stop shop for consumer and healthcare data, you can imagine a very efficient way for them to deploy medicine, a way for them to even get ahead of things by knowing, you know, so let's say every evening you come home, you tell Alexa to turn on the microwave. There's a sense that they know that you're eating microwave food and what might that do to your health and you know, trying to get a sense of, okay, if someone is eating microwave food every evening, what impact does that have on their health and what can we do about it? And so ultimately you, you do see where this can be beneficial, but I do see some dangers in it. Right. And even now Google wants to acquire Fitbit for $2.1 billion. Why is that? 
because they want to get all of your Fitbit data and then maybe be able to meld that as well with your search data to form some kind of algorithm to make some conclusions about you. But as I think about it, I, I just think, you know, do I want a potential employer to have so much information on me? So they, the claim is that there will not be a sharing between the consumer and the health data, but I'm not sure that we can believe that. And in the event that we cannot, what happens then when you go for a job interview, for example, at Amazon, and they have all of this information on you? Do you trust them to not use it? I don't know. But there, you can imagine a world where they kind of consolidate all that data to create a profile on you and then start making certain financial um, health decisions about you and just employment decisions about you that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And so, I mean, this is the world that we're living in now, and I don't think it's one that we'll be able to turn the clock back on. So for me, I think one of the things that we really need now is to have a default rule where instead of having to opt out, I do think that people should have to opt into having their data shared, especially when it's something as sensitive as health data. So as opposed to, you know, the, the hospitals and healthcare providers being able to share your information without your consent, they should actually have to seek consent in order to share it. And what that would do is at least put you in a position to say, look, um, I've thought about it. I've thought about the upside. I've thought about the downside. And here's what I think. It's okay to share it or it's not okay. But as things stand right now, consumers or it's, it's weird to even refer to people as consumers when they're in a hospital. But patients don't really have a, dis, have a say in whether or not their information is shared. Uh, the, the hospital can just go ahead and share it without them. So that's something I, I, I think is fairly, you know, confusing to me as to where we're going to end up when, you know, we get to a point where all the information is in the hands of only a few companies and the decisions that they can make, you know, once they have all that information and how that can negatively and adversely impact us, not only as consumers, but as patients, Will we get into a situation where there's price fixing because one company has so much information that their pricing power is greater? We see that in a lot of um, industries already, but what does that mean if and when we start to see that in the healthcare industry? And so uh, that, you know, I just want to share my thoughts on that, on, on that segment, just to get some sense of what do we think about a world where Google and Amazon not only have what you eat, when you eat, how you eat, but also how do those things affect you? And, you know, what kind of medication will you need on account of what it is that you're eating and what price you'll pay? And we're moving towards a world where one or two or three companies will have all of that information. Okay, yeah, so we're back. Um, this is the final segment before we get into uh, what I call the champagne moment of the week. Uh, but uh, the final segment, I actually want to talk a little bit about dating. Um, now, I haven't really dated since 2013 when I met my wife. Um, but I do remember what it used to be like before, you know, you had e-dating. You actually had to go up to women and say what's up, talk to them, you know, take them out on dates and, you know, try to find a way that you guys could vibe together. Um, but from my friends who are still single, I'm learning like that's no longer the case. Like you just rock up on Tinder. And as I've been told, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, that's kind of how some people refer to it. So I, I'm, I'm not really too into what the dating life is like today. But I did see two dating stories that I wanted to share and just talk through. Um, the first one is actually from Tinder. So Tinder is actually thinking of buying a company. I think the name of the company is Noonlight. 
Um, but what they do is they provide tracking data and what Tinder is likely to do is they want to actually introduce a panic button. So for example, if a lady is on a date or even if a guy's on a date with another guy or vice versa, whatever the case may be, but to the extent that you're on a date and you feel like you're in danger, you can push a button. They get, they, they get an alert. They call you. If you don't answer, then they can send the police to where you are and they can kind of solve that situation. Now, I, th- I think it's a great, it's a great idea to think through to see, you know, how best you can do it because on a lot of these dating sites, you know, you do have quite a bit of sexual assault that happens that, you know, sometimes maybe it could be avoided if, if something like this existed. And I remember, you know, just talking to a friend of mine, I think it was like, you know, over the Christmas period and she was talking to a guy and he was saying, you know, I'm a little tired. I don't have any money. Why don't you just come over and we can just hang out. And, you know, she was just like, well, I don't want to end up in a ditch. I don't even know this guy. So I'm not going. So, you know, I I didn't really think about it at the time, but when I saw this story, there is kind of like this real fear that women sometimes have with modern dating because you tend to, you know, you're going out with someone for the first time. You don't really know them. You don't have any contact with them at all beyond their profile. And so maybe a service like this where you can kind of push a button if you feel in danger can make people a bit more comfortable, you know, with the dating apps and kind of, you know, avoiding certain uncomfortable situations. But I tend to think of all of these things from the point of, you know, consumer data. And that's a, that's probably too big of a feature of this show, but it's something that like, I'm just crazy interested about because I know that's where the future is going. And I keep thinking what's, what's the play here. And so I think for Tinder is like, you know, now they know how long do people go out on dates because you have your tracking software on They know how far from home people on average may go on dates. What restaurants do they go to? um, And then what services can they offer once they consolidate all that data on their users? Um, So I think it's a great service. I think it's a net benefit, but it does kind of come with this uh, trade-off that I see consistently, which is how much of your privacy are you willing to give up for a service that we're offering? And in this case, the question is, you know, how much of, your tracking data, location data, do you want to give up to be safe on a date? Um, and so that's an answer I think a lot of Tinder users will have to come up with fairly soon. And so I just wanted to touch on that because I do think it's interesting. I do think it's something that as a service can be great for women when they go on dates. If they do feel uncomfortable, it is nice for them to have, you know, a solution that's not just, you know, telling their friends, hey, if I don't call you in 15 minutes, something's wrong. Right. I, I do hear that a lot when I when I talk to women about going on first dates It's like, you know, having to check in and check in at multiple times. And so this check in mechanism is is now kind of a new feature where not only can you check in with your friends, but you can also alert the authorities that, you know, you are in danger and someone can come and get you out of that situation. So that's the first half of like the dating stuff that I saw this week. The second one, and I'm a little late to the party on this one, but. It's actually this app called Modamily, which I think is some kind of amalgam of modern and family for like the modern family. Um, I'm not too clever for that. It's, it's fairly obvious that, that that's what they were going for. But the whole idea behind Modamily is kind of like, okay, I wake up, I'm like 35, 38, I have no prospects, or, you know, I just don't want to deal with having to go out, find someone, go on dates, get married, do that whole thing. But I do deep down want to have children. And so what they do is they offer you a service where you just go on, 
um, and it pairs people together who want to have children who may not necessarily want to have a romantic relationship. And again, it's like, you know, it, it rubs some people the wrong way because of our sensibilities for what, you know, for centuries we've thought has been kind of the way the human family, nuclear family is constructed and what it means to raise children and what it means to have a family. But, you know, the way I kind of think about it is like, you know, what if you can't find a partner but really want to have a child? How do you how do you manage that? And, you know, that's a real concern for a lot of, you know, my women friends at this age who are single, who talk to me and, you know, consistent disappointments on their prospects, the people they're dating. And even some of the guys I know who are just like, look, man, I wouldn't mind just having a baby moms and skipping the whole marriage thing. And so it's, it, it, it is a real, real issue that, you know, a lot of people are, are considering right now, particularly is people are working a lot longer. Millennials are taking a lot longer to have babies. And millennial women, I think, have the lowest birth rate in the history of America. So, you know, what we're really trying to find is, you know, how can you kind of encourage people who want to have children but don't really feel like they have the patience or frankly, the luck to find someone who they think that, you know, they they want to spend the rest of their lives with. And so Modamily is a service for that. And okay, so like, what are the pros of something like this? Like, I think about it in terms of like, when you're dating, like when I was dating, I didn't really talk about kids with my wife for like maybe a year. And it's partly because when you're dating, you don't want to appear to be too serious. But if you're getting with someone for the purpose of having children, this kind of allows you to be very deliberate in kind of what you want out of the situation. So you know going in, we want kids. What kind of children do we want to raise? What kind of parents do we want to be? So that's a very upfront discussion that I find sometimes like a lot of married couples get surprised at, you know, their their partner's values with respect to how they want to raise children. So this is one way of getting that out up front. The second thing is, you know, I wonder if when you go into it knowing that your commitment is to the child and not to each other, if you ultimately parent better, I don't, I don't know, because I mean, what I've seen, you know, in my upbringing is that a lot of men, when they're no longer in love with the mother, it's almost like they fall out of love with the child as well. And I've seen that, you know, look, I'm Jamaican. So I, I grew up in a community where I think only one of my friends growing up lived with his dad. Most of my friends, myself included, live with only our mothers or a stepfather. And so, and some of us didn't see our dads for years, didn't talk to them for months, never saw them again. I mean, I have a nephew who's never met his dad. And so when I think about what it means to kind of put the child first, you know, this is kind of a partnership that's saying, look, the child is the most important thing about our union. And I wonder if going into it that way, you don't have a more healthy relationship for the kid. And by that, you just skip the whole marriage and messy divorce and just go straight to co-parenting. So I, I think for people who are doing it, that's maybe some of the reasons why they're thinking about it that way. Um, but for me, like when I think about some of the cons, I really wonder, like, what happens when one of the parents, you know, fall in love with someone else? Um, and, you know, maybe that person isn't really that cool with this relationship. But that's no real different from a divorcee remarrying and having to integrate their new family with their old family. And, and then I, I, I do think one of the bigger cons of it, and this is not a judgment on anyone who chooses to use a service like this, but I do think that you have a situation where you're kind of devaluing the, 
the idea of having two parents in the home at the same time for the kid. It's something I didn't have. Um, I think I've seen my parents together like maybe 10 times max. Uh, two of them are funerals. Um, and so like I, I rarely have seen my parents together. So growing up, I didn't really know what that was like. And even now that I'm married with children, I've had to learn kind of like what it means to be with someone together, raising a family together. But when I was in college, what I saw like that was just clear was that the kids who grew up with both of their parents were just like so much more balanced and they had less stuff to overcome. And again, that's not a judgment on anyone. This is just what this research has kind of borne out. And so I wonder if, you know, a service like this, people who use it, they're kind of maybe undervaluing the idea of being in love with your partner before you make a child together and what the benefits of that love between mother and father can mean for the child that you have together. So, you know, that's, that's kind of my thought on Modamily and Tinder. And it's just, you know, it's just a clear sign that like modern dating is nothing like what we, we thought it was before. Like, you know, when I was dating, like you'd, probably run into someone somewhere, get their phone number, call them up, be on the phone for 30 minutes, show them you're interested. Um, but now it appears like, you know, you just swipe right or you send a text or like you send nudes. I don't, I, I don't know what's happening today, but, you know, people are making it work. So, you know, to anyone using Modamily, you know, good luck to you finding the family that you want. You deserve it. And for people who use Tinder who feel, you know, not as secure as they want to be, hopefully the the panic button can really be be of some benefit to you or hopefully, frankly, you never really need it. I, th I think that's probably the better thing is that you never really need either of these services. Maybe, you know, you never find yourself in like, you know, an uncomfortable compromising position and all of us find our soulmates by the time we're, you know, in high school and like live happily ever after. Um, so, you know, both of those are unlikely. So I think, you know, these are two services that we need for modern dating. Zaya. Yeah, that's it. You know what it is. It's uh, it's Zion time. Uh, you know, it's the moment NBA fans everywhere have been waiting for. Uh, you know, it's been, what, 43, 44 games before we were able to see him. But Zion is finally here and bringing joy to everybody in the NBA. I watched them play against uh, the Spurs. To be honest, he looked really bad. The first three quarters looked out of shape, looked like someone would look when they'd miss 45 games. But that little three-minute stretch in the fourth quarter when he had 17 straight points was probably the most exciting part of the NBA season so far. And it just goes to show you that, you know, the NBA is a league about stars. And when the stars are not around, what happens is that you know, ratings go down, excitement goes down, and discussion about the games go down. And then all it took was for Zion to get back, to get hot. And then every trending topic on Twitter was about Zion and the Pelicans. And, you know, it's it's now, it, it's a funny thing because I've been talking to my friends and what everybody's saying now is, you know, can Zion win Rookie of the Year? My answer is no. But, you know, once again, these things are about narratives. John Morant should be Rookie of the Year. He's played the whole season. Um, but, you know, Zion has come back. He looks great. And, you know, over two games, he's averaging like 19 points, seven rebounds and like 75, 80% shooting, um, which is in line with what he was doing in the preseason. So for me, I think, you know, the joy for everybody in the NBA right now is, is in Zion. And let's see what happens going forward. But I'm really excited to have him back in the league. 
it's it's just great to have stars back performing and you know i i'm looking forward to seeing what the pelicans can do going forward so yeah 